Hi, and welcome to Anatomyth. Today's episode is all about horns, and we're having a look at some horn gods and goddesses. The story of one creator god in particular will show us that, at least in some cultures, the egg did in fact come first. Then, we'll have a look at a hermit who made some pretty bad decisions and learn exactly why you should stay away from strangers who get lost in the mountains, even if they're really pretty. Then, we'll move on to some historic cases of humans with cutaneous horns. These are growths on the skin which, you guessed it, look like horns. We'll briefly track the cutaneous horns' progression from supernatural manifestation to skin tumor, eventually ending with the medical understanding of the lesion today. Anatomyth is a podcast about stories, conjecture, and the human body. Humans have long been using stories as a way to make sense of the world around them. This podcast looks at these stories, the myths, legends, lore, and fairy tales, and tries to find an aspect of medicine that fits in with certain aspects of fiction. I'm Audrey, your host. I'm a medical student who's always been interested in such stories, and I love looking for connections, even though they sometimes don't exist. Please remember that any recommendations I might make shouldn't be taken too seriously. I'm not yet a medical professional, and what I say shouldn't be counted as medical advice. Likewise, the proposed link between myth and medicine shouldn't be counted as fact. This is a podcast that's primarily for entertainment purposes, and it's filled with speculation and conjecture. This is episode three, The Horn in Your Side. So there are a lot of horn deities in mythology, and their domains of power vary so widely across the different cultures. There's Kernunas, the horn god of the Celts and protector of the forest. He was associated with vegetation and the hunt, and in particular, he and his horns were associated with the stag. He's also believed to be a god of fertility, partly because of the connection to vegetation, and partly because the stag's antlers were a symbol of fertility to the ancient Celts. The horned god is sometimes connected with the Greek god Pan, who has the body and head of a man, but the legs and horns of a goat. Pan is also associated with the wilds and fertility, among other things like music and shepherds and hunters, but Pan's erotic and lustful nature tends to be more ascribed to him actually being part beast, rather than to the horns alone. In Egyptian mythology, cow horns were indicative of a celestial body. Goddesses who identified with the sky, like Hathor and, later on, Isis, were usually depicted with either horns or a horned headdress, and were sometimes even portrayed with a solar disk in the center of this headdress. Hathor, the cow goddess, was a goddess of the sky, love, fertility, and women and motherhood among many, many other things. Obviously, 
Hathor was all about the multitasking. Isis, who grew in popularity in the later kingdoms, was associated with Hathor, and likewise had a very widespread domain. Of course, on the flip side, horns have also been associated with evil and wrongdoing, whether it's devils and demons, violent monsters, or even witches. But wherever they belong on an alignment chart, horned individuals are generally incredibly powerful. And today, we're talking about two such deities. The first is a creator god from Chinese mythology, who made the earth and whose body nourished the creatures that came to live in it. The second is a hermit who, instead of minding his own business, went and captured a few pesky dragons, plunging an entire land into drought. The story of Pan Ku, the creator god in Chinese mythology, contains some elements of Taoism, primarily this idea of yin and yang, and the balance between these two forces. So Taoism is both a religion and philosophical system that originated in ancient China. As a religion, it took on a pantheon of gods and immortals, one of which was Pan Ku. Also central to Taoism is this idea of yin and yang, the concept of duality and two opposing forces, light and dark, male and female, hot and cold, action and inaction, and the idea that these opposing forces are not just complementary, but also interdependent. This verges more into the philosophical territory of Taoism and the Tao. Obviously, there's a lot more to the philosophy, but this is a myth podcast after all. And I'm really only mentioning this because it connects to our story today. In the beginning, there was an egg. Not like a regular egg, but a primordial egg the great cosmic egg of chaos. And for 18,000 years, there was nothing but this egg. During all those years, something inside of the egg slept and grew, and the forces of yin and yang balanced within this egg. Yeah, 18,000 years, kind of a long time. But there are some days when I wish that I could nap for that long. One day, the being inside the egg woke up, stretched, and cracked the shell. Emerging from this broken shell was Panku, the creator god. He was large and covered in hair all over, and he had two tusks, and horns grew from the top of his head. In emerging from the egg, he separated the yin and yang. All that was light and clear floated above, becoming the heavens and all that was heavy and dark sank, becoming the earth. Panku, not satisfied with the distance between the two halves, stood between them, pushing them further and further apart as he grew more and more each day. And so, for another 18,000 years, give or take a few days, Panku stood between heaven and earth, occupied by his task. Then one day, certain that the heaven and earth were so far apart that they would never again rejoin, 
Panku died. I'm not too sure how he determined that heaven and earth were far enough apart. Maybe there's a special measurement system for that, like the height of one atlas. Or maybe he was just tired. It did take him all of 18 millennia. And in fact, some versions of the story do say that Panku was just exhausted by the end of it. But either way, he died, and his body became the world. His breath became the wind, and his voice the thunder. His blood became the seas, his flesh the soil, and his hair the vegetation. His arms and legs became the earth, his head the mountains, and his bone, teeth, and marrow the rocks, metals, and precious stones. Humans are said to have evolved from the parasites that fed on his body. Obviously, the stories about Panku creating the universe vary, as creation myths do, and likely also evolved with time. In some versions, the eggshell cracked because he stretched, and in others, he cracked it with a hammer that he had conjured. He's also sometimes aided in separating and balancing the yin and yang by four creatures, the tortoise, phoenix, unicorn, and dragon. I really like the version where humans evolved from the parasites that lived on Panku. I think it's kind of poetic and a pretty accurate description of our role here on Earth today. Additionally, this idea of sacrifice is also a staple of many creation myths, where the world springs forth from another's body. For example, there's the Assyrian Tiamat, whose body was divided in half to make the heaven and earth. There's also the Indian primordial being Purusha, whose body parts became the parts of the universe. There are, of course, other variations of the creation of humans. One version of the Panku story says that he created humans with a chisel and hammer, and yet another says that when Panku died, there were no humans on earth. It was the goddess Niwa, usually depicted with the head of a woman and the body of a snake, who created the first humans out of yellow earth after the separation of the earth and sky. At first, she sculpted each and every human being individually. That's dedication right there. But finding that it took too long, the goddess eventually opted for just dragging a rope through mud and flinging it around, and all of the little droplets of mud that landed on the ground became people. Whenever you're dealing with myths, minor variations like these are part of the deal. Between all of the times that the story has been told and retold, and add to that the geographical and little cultural differences between groups of people telling this story, these things are absolutely inevitable. But there is another story involving a character called Panku. This version is pretty wildly different from the creation myth that we just heard. Among some of the nationalities of southern China, such as the Miao and Yao, Panku was once the dog of the god of heaven, and he's not so much a creator god as the ancestor of mankind. But this is a story for another day. 
If the idea of a creator springing from an egg can be found in other mythologies as well. For example, in some stories, the Hindu god Brahma emerged from a golden egg after 1,000 years and set about creating the universe. There's actually a theory that the myth of Panku may have originated from that of Brahma, not only because of the similarities between both tales, but also the fact that Panku appears quite late in mythic texts, only cropping up around the 3rd century CE. Some similarities can also be found in the story of the creator god Ta'aroa of Tahiti, who also came from an egg and the halves of the shell becoming the heaven and earth. And now, we move on to the other deity who's the focus of today's episode. Senen were kind of like hermits. They were mountain recluses who were immortal and were also adept in the mythic arts. There seems to be a lot of overlap between the Japanese Senen, the Taoist immortals, and even the Bosatsu of the Japanese Buddhist immortals. In fact, some of the Japanese senin have Chinese counterparts, like Gamma Senin or the Toad Immortal. Gamma Senin appears to have been adopted from the Chinese Taoist Liu Haixian, who similarly learned the secrets of immortality from a three-legged toad. Of course, Japan has many of its own senin legends too. Ikak Senin, or the One-Horned Hermit, for example, was a no-play written by Komparu Zempo in the 15th century. The play was about a hermit with a single horn growing from the middle of his forehead, who had trapped the rain dragons in a cave. Ikak Senin was a powerful man. So powerful, in fact, that he had managed to overpower the rain dragons, shutting them in a cave for a very long time. But because these dragons were locked in a cave, they couldn't bring the rain, so the land suffered a horrible drought. The king, determined to end this dry spell, devised a plan to free the dragons, and like so many other plans of the time, it relied pretty heavily on seduction. The king was absolutely certain that it would work. The good old seduction ploy always did. He'd found the right girl, too, a courtesan, and he'd explain the plan to her. Together, they would free the dragons and bring down rain. Well, not together, exactly. He was the king, after all. He had kingly duties to attend to. But she could go to the mountains. Alone? With a lot of alcohol? Yep, it sounded like a pretty solid plan. And so, the courtesan is sent up into the mountains to seduce the hermit. And her cover story is that she's lost her way. She's so beautiful that the hermit is unable to resist her charms. And Ikaksenin falls deeply in love with her. Later that night, this woman plies him with wine until he falls asleep, allowing the dragons to escape. One thing you should know about the senin is that 
Because they gained their powers through a combination of study and abstinence, they also lose said power when they yield to human passions. Like in this case, partaking in wine and enjoying the company of a pretty lady. So, when you think about it, the escaped captives were really the least of Ikaxenin's worries when he wakes up the next day. He's a little disoriented, as he looks around to see empty wine bottles littering the floor, and stacks of whatever the ancient Japanese equivalent of red beer pong cups is lying around. There were also some alcohol stains on the floor. Those were going to be a pain to remove. Ikaxenin tries to think, to remember what happened last night, but it's made really difficult by the pounding in his head. Also, had it always been this bright in the morning? And why was everything so loud? He certainly hadn't been aware that his otherworldly capabilities included superhuman hearing. So I'm not entirely sure how, but eventually the hermit realizes that the dragons have escaped and he attempts to fight the Dragon King. Probably not the smartest idea, as first of all, he's lost his powers. Second, he probably has a massive headache. And third, the Dragon King is really angry. Like, powered by righteous fury angry. It comes as no surprise that Ikaxenin loses. The story goes on to say that the dragons then bring down rain before calling it a day and flying off home. I already mentioned earlier that the story comes from a No play. Just a little bit about No, spelled N-O-H. It's a traditional form of Japanese theater where the actors wear masks made of wood and which involves singing, chanting, and also dance. The current style was developed in the 14th century, making it the oldest performance art that's still performed today. Also, I want to talk about the seduce the not-so-friendly mountain recluse plan. This whole seduce the being holding other beings captive is such a common trope in these stories, and I don't fully understand why it's always so effective, especially in the case of solitary beings. It's worth mentioning that you see this a lot in tales of monsters terrorizing villages and lands. Often, a woman is kidnapped or sent as a sacrifice to this monster or villain, and she ends up either seducing or marrying them even, and gaining their trust. All of this eventually leads to her escape and, oftentimes, even the villain's demise. These villains are usually solitary creatures as well. And I do understand the idea of a loner wanting human interaction after being on their own for so long. But this isn't always the case, and I'd have to guess that there must be some voluntary recluses out there. Speaking for myself, as someone who can't stand a lot of human interaction, I like to think that I'd become a hermit and live in the woods 
If only I weren't so attached to the internet. But in a time when the internet wasn't a thing yet, I imagine that I'd be very annoyed at the fact that someone deliberately sought me out in my place of recluse just to bother me. I guess the cranky hermit is something of a more modern trope. But just once, I want to see a myth where a would-be seductress is shooed away by a very annoyed old man for interrupting his morning yoga. So now, we've seen two powerful horn deities, and we'll get to the real-life condition of cutaneous horns right after this. Introducing the new and improved Gowlands Lotion by McDonald, Humbert & Co. Guaranteed to remove everything from pimples to freckles to scrofula and so much more. Gowlands Lotion is sure to get rid of all of those pesky imperfections along with the rest of your skin. With active ingredients like bitter almond, sugar, and mercury chloride, this renowned formula unclogs your pores and allows your skin to breathe, restoring it to its natural bloom. Gowlands Lotion Natural, radiant, and only slightly corroded skin for the fashionable Regency lady. Now available in quarts, pints, and half pints. Horn humans are not just a thing of myth. Although pretty rare, it's entirely possible for a horn-like protrusion to sprout from your skin. These are called cutaneous horns. And while their existence has been documented for about a few hundred years now, we still don't know what exactly causes their formation. This isn't such a big problem today. We're well aware of the limitations of our knowledge, and this isn't exactly the first condition that we don't have all the answers to just yet. But, as you can probably imagine, some time ago, these would have been considered some manifestation of some supernatural force or origin. The earliest well-documented case of a cutaneous horn is that of Margaret Griffith, a Welshwoman from back in 1588 who had a four-inch horn growing from her forehead. There's supposedly a bit of lore surrounding this horn as well. I say supposedly, because while it's written in one of the studies that I read, I can't find anything on it anywhere else. Of course, it could just be one of those local legends that aren't very widespread. Anyway, according to this paper, legend says that just before his death, Margaret's husband accused her of giving him the horn. This implied that she'd been unfaithful. As back in the day, horns had been a sign of cheating on your husband. Of course, Margaret denies this accusation and said that if she'd committed adultery, then a horn would grow on her forehead. I find this a little interesting, as usually it's the husband that's saddled with the horn. But anyway, guess what? The horn grew. And the 16th century being what it was, this poor woman was put on display in London, 
and it's the advertising pamphlets, as well as the observations written down by all of the poets and playwrights that went to see her, that are assumed to be the earliest records that we have of cutaneous horns. Also, because it was the 16th century, it was apparently suggested that this so-called unworldly horn was a warning for others to repent and ask God for forgiveness. There are other famous cases of cutaneous horns. For example, there's Mary Davis, who was a 17th century woman with horns growing on the back of her head. There's also Madame de Manche, a French woman who lived in Paris in the 19th century. She was 76 when a horn started growing on the center of her forehead, starting as something like an ashy smudge. Within six years, the horn had grown to nearly 10 inches long and reached all the way down her face. Fortunately for Madame de Manche, she was able to get it surgically removed. And fortunately for us, prior to surgery, a wax model of the woman's head had been made and is on display today in the Mutter Museum. The Mutter Museum is a medical museum which holds preserved specimens, both anatomical and pathological, wax models, and even medical instruments. This same museum also houses a dried specimen of a cutaneous horn that's nearly 20 centimeters long, or just shy of 8 inches, which was removed from a 70-year-old woman. According to the museum's website, it had been the woman's second horn growth and had been present for seven years before she'd had it removed. In 1930, a photo of a Manchurian farmer was either sent to or discovered by Robert Ripley of the Ripley's Believe It or Not fame. The man, who was called Wang, had a 13-inch horn growing from the back of his head, and he became the first of Ripley's so-called human unicorns. The 16th century was not a great time for people who didn't fit the so-called normal mold. Back then, if you hadn't been burnt at the stake for being a witch, you'd have been put on display somewhere. Thankfully, science and medicine have evolved since then, and society is kind of more tolerant to people with differences. We've also made great strides in those few hundred years, and we now know that horns are not, in fact, a mark of the devil, or proof that someone's been cheating on someone else, but simply a skin condition. Well, simply might not be the right word here. Cutaneous horns were first posited to be skin tumors, and there is nothing trivial about tumors. Since the late 16th century, a number of accounts of cutaneous horns have been described in medical books and journals. Thomas Barthelin, a Danish anatomist in the 17th century, proposed that just maybe these horns weren't a sign of consorting with the powers that be, but were instead produced by skin tumors. I can just imagine the uproar that this must have caused. It's always so much less fun when you can't blame things on magic. Support for this hypothesis came quite a bit later, in the late 18th century, 
when Everard Home published an article confirming Bartholin's findings. Today, we know that Bartholin's hypothesis was pretty much right. While the horns themselves aren't actually tumors, they have been found in association with cancerous processes. Just a side note here, the word tumor is usually associated with cancer. Now, I don't know what its exact meaning was back in the 1600s, but today, a tumor in medicine is a growth or a mass which results from the excessive multiplication of body cells. Of course, tumors can be cancerous, which happens when they spread to other parts of the body, but they can also be benign or non-cancerous. But this doesn't mean that benign tumors are completely harmless either. After all, they're growths that are hanging out where they shouldn't be, and as a result, can press on some other important stuff, like blood vessels and organs. Alright, but what is a cutaneous horn? The fancy Latin name for it is cornucotanium, and it's basically a kind of protrusion on the skin. It can be as tiny as a bump to several centimeters, or even much longer if left unchecked. They can be straight, curved, twisted, or anything in between. And as I already said, cutaneous horns are a pretty uncommon lesion. They're typically found on areas of the skin that are exposed to the sun, and sometimes also in areas of chronic irritation or inflammation. And while the historical cases earlier were of horns on the head, they also typically occur on the forearms and backs of the hands. These horns are composed of keratin, a protein that you've probably already heard of, between all of the keratin treatments, hair masks, and other beauty products out there. Keratin is a structural protein that's found in our hair and skin, as well as in animals' feathers, horns, and claws. These cutaneous horns form when excessive keratin is produced and compacted in the epidermis. The epidermis is the outer layer of the skin. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but for now, we can very, very broadly classify the cells in the epidermis into living cells, which are found more in the lower layers, and the dead keratin-filled ones that occupy the surface of the epidermis. We don't know yet what exactly causes the formation of these horns. One leading theory is that sun exposure and radiation can trigger this condition. These two are pretty much the main suspects anyway whenever we talk about skin lesions and skin cancer. And they could explain why cutaneous horns tend to form on areas of the skin that are exposed to sunlight. But there are also cases where horns grew on areas with burn scars, and another suggested association is with viral infections, like the human papillomavirus, or HPV. One thing to remember is that the horn itself isn't considered clinically relevant. The horn is made of dead keratin. And yes, it can be very uncomfortable and make a person extremely self-conscious. But it's not a diagnosis. Cutaneous horns are found in association with underlying skin conditions. And one theory is that the formation of the horn 
might just be a response to these diseases. So, it's with the underlying skin conditions that the danger lies. And the list is very long and include benign, pre-malignant, and malignant lesions. It's a little difficult to tell which of the three types of basal lesions or underlying conditions is most common because the studies vary on the exact percentages. There was one large study, and I think the largest one to date, which was conducted in 1991 and involved 643 cases of cutaneous horns. This study found that 60% were due to benign lesions, whereas a more recent study from 2010 reported that only 41% were benign. From the research that I've done, it appears that the other studies tend to reference the earlier one more, maybe because it has a much larger sample size. As already mentioned, the list of possible underlying lesions is very long, and I'm not going to go through each and every one of them. First of all, there just isn't enough time, and also, I'm not actually trying to put anyone to sleep. Instead, I'm just going to talk about squamous cell carcinoma. Here's a hint. Whenever there's carcinoma in the name, that's usually not a good sign. Squamous cell carcinoma is one of the most common causes of cutaneous horns and also the second most common skin cancer. Squamous cell carcinoma is an invasive tumor which originates from the squamous cell layers of the epidermis. The name kind of gives it away. I already briefly mentioned that the epidermis has different layers. You have the live cells at the bottom and the dead cells at the top. But it's a bit more complicated than that. At the very bottom of the epidermis, you have this basal layer, and it's made up of cube-shaped cells. Now, as you move up and towards the surface, these cuboidal cells will get thinner and thinner until they're these old, dead, and really, really thin cells. These flat cells are now called squamous cells. Normally, these are constantly being shed, as new squamous cells are rising up through the epidermis to replace them. And it's from these surface and middle layers of cells that squamous cell carcinomas develop. Most cutaneous horns with a malignant base are due to squamous cell carcinoma of the skin. I'm just trying to emphasize the skin part here because squamous cells exist in other parts of the body as well, and therefore we can have these cancers in these other parts. Squamous cell carcinomas of the skin, as already mentioned, are very locally invasive and, again, is the second most common skin cancer, right after basal cell carcinoma. SCC, or squamous cell carcinoma, is more common in men and those above the age of 60, and the incidence tends to increase the closer that you live to the equator. UV light is one of the risk factors for developing this kind of cancer, but there are also others like exposure to arsenic, other kinds of radiation, and immunosuppressive drugs. But let's just focus on excessive UV radiation, 
because I've mentioned it way too many times already, and it's a big factor in the development of these lesions, and also quite a few others. UV radiation causes DNA damage, which in turn leads to gene mutations and instability, and through other processes also can cause inflammation and suppression of the immune system. What all of this means is that severe exposure to UV radiation induces the formation of tumors and also helps them grow. It's kind of like protein powder for the tumor. There are different ways to try to treat squamous cell carcinoma, but for cutaneous horns, these are usually surgically removed. A sample is then taken from the base of the horn and sent to pathology for evaluation. This is the only way to find out the underlying cause of the horn, which is really important because, as we talked about earlier, it's the underlying cause that can be dangerous, and therefore, this is what needs to be treated. The horns can also be removed by cryosurgery, where they're first frozen off with liquid nitrogen and then removed, but this method destroys the specimen that we should be taking for evaluation. I really enjoyed this topic. I haven't done dermatology yet, so some of the things here were pretty new to me, and that made researching just that much more fun. More than that, this topic encompasses a lot of what I find interesting about medicine. Cutaneous horns are something which, not too long ago, would have branded someone as a witch or a magical beast. But as medicine and really just science in general progresses, we learn that some things are really just your body doing its thing and reacting to its environment. And we can actually help people now instead of just pointing and laughing at them. It's also a good reminder of what a long road it's been to get to where we are now, and of the uglier side to our history. Poor Margaret Griffith, who was put on display, was not the first nor last person to become an attraction because of a condition. And sure, we've moved on from pitching tents in some empty lot for people to laugh at others, but as a society, we can always do and be better. This topic also shows us how far we have left to go. We've discovered and figured out so much already, but there's still a lot that we don't know about how our body and different diseases work. Next month, we'll be heading back to Europe as we tackle a fairy tale from the Brothers Grimm. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on your preferred podcast app, and please rate the show and leave a review. It helps to get the word out about the show, and I really appreciate getting feedback. Also, tell your friends about it. You can also reach the show on social media, whether it's to suggest a topic, weigh in on your preferred hermit trope, or just say hi. Also, let me know which version of the Panku creation myth you prefer. You can find the show on Twitter at AnatomythPod and on Instagram and Facebook at Anatomith. 
You can also send an email to audrey at anatomith.com. Links to the website and social media are in the show notes. I'm Audrey, your host, and this was Anatomith. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.